0: Welcome to Indy Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week on the podcast, reporter Daniel Rothberg sits down with UNR Assistant Professor of Media Law Patrick File to talk about the Nevada Supreme Court case between blogger Sam Toll and land and brothel owner Lance Gilman in a case concerning Nevada's Shield laws for journalists. Later, reporter Jackie Valley and I chat about a trip we took in October with photographer Jeff Scheid, visiting different rural school districts to see what struggles they face. At the end of the episode, editor John Ralston tells me about what he thought of two movies, Marriage Story and The Irishman. But before all of that, we're going to hear some news from this week. But this time, instead of playing a few newsreads from KUNR, we are going to play a few answers from Governor Steve Sisolak from an interview we did with him. We first asked the governor about the 2020 presidential election and if he planned on endorsing any candidates before the February caucus.
1: No, that's not my intentions. I've met with uh, all the candidates multiple times. Uh, I encourage them all to continue to visit Nevada as much as possible. Uh, I think we're the best example of any of the early states. And I told him the important thing is really not my endorsement. It's the culinary worker in the back of the house at the Mirage, or the guy working on the expansion of the convention center.
0: We then asked the governor if he would support a single-payer health care system.
1: I think we need to do a lot on the health care front to improve quality health care. I've said all along that health care to me is only quality if it's affordable and accessible. Uh, Medicare for all, when you get into taking away the health care that unions have negotiated over a period of time, that's problematic. I mean, people have their doctors, they have their, their plans they don't want to change those so i don't know the logistics of how that would work it's a term that's thrown out there medicare for all is defined differently by different candidates so i'm concerned that uh i want to make sure that their labor partners don't lose health care that they have people that have health care. and uh that's important I mean, You know, if it's an expansion you want to make it earlier qualifying eligibility for medicare if you want to uh expand it in that regard you want to do those sort of things but uh there's a lot of logistical problems with to that. So.
0: Lastly, we asked the governor about gun control in the state after the mass shooting in Gilroy, California, where the gunman purchased a gun in Nevada.
1: I've uh, had a lengthy discussion with uh, Governor Newsom on this issue, you know, when we were together. Uh, I'm proud of what we did on the Common Sense Gun Regulation this last session. I'm really proud of the legislators that brought some good stuff forward whether that was, you bump stocks, or red flag laws or the alcohol limits and uh, background check loopholes, all of those things. We made a lot of progress. Uh, candidly, I think I underestimated the uh, amount of emotion that was involved with some of the rural communities as it came, as it comes to firearms or dealing with the sheriff of Humboldt County that, you know, uh, we're dealing with sheriffs that are just saying we're not gonna enforce the law. I mean, that's problematic. Uh, I didn't think it would be that, uh, I guess, emotionally charged or that, you know, that it's a litmus test issue for folks that don't understand. or don't want to take the time to understand what's trying to explain to them. So uh, we're gathering more information.
0: All right. Now on to Daniel's interview with UNR assistant professor Patrick File.
2: Patrick, great to have you on the podcast.
3: Thanks. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah. So uh, the Supreme Court issued a ruling last week that was pretty significant for protections for online journalists in Nevada. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So it was an interesting ruling. Um, It was a case involving Lance Gilman and uh, Sam Toll, Sam Toll, who writes the Storyteller Online, an online news source for Story County. Um, and had been reporting on uh, sort of all things Lance Gilman for some time. And Gilman had sued him for defamation. And in the process, the kind of pretrial process, Gilman had deposed Sam Toll and sought to find out his confidential sources for a a story that Toll had had published. And Toll claimed that he was covered by the state SHIELD law, the state journalist SHIELD law. Which covers generally these kinds of situations where a reporter can refuse to hand over unpublished information or confidential sources. And that was basically the central question because Toll doesn't publish in print. Um, isn't what we'd kind of consider to be a traditional newspaper or broadcast journalist. And so that uh, Gilman uh, sort of challenged that assertion, and that was the question before the state Supreme Court. And the state Supreme Court ruled that digital journalists and, and digital news, as they put it, can be covered by the state shield law. It's interesting because they didn't specifically rule on the question of whether or not toll is covered in mm-hmm. this circumstance, right. they that they kicked back down to the district court, but they kind of challenged the district courts and, and reversed the district court's reasoning for finding that toll because he writes on a blog and doesn't publish in a newspaper that he's not covered by the shield law, right?
2: So that's effectively now the law across the state or the
3: interpretation of the law across the state? Yeah, it's interesting. So basically the court did something very kind of interesting here in that they, they sort of issued both a broad and a narrow ruling kind mm-hmm. of at the same time. So the broad part of the ruling is they said you know, the question before us is whether digital news can be covered by the Shield law, and we rule that it can. And they said that, right? So basically the idea there, you know, the big broad idea there is if you do news and publish online, if you do journalism and publish online only, you can be covered by the S.H.I.E.L.D. law. Right. The narrow part of it was that they didn't say whether Sam Toll specifically is covered yeah. by the Shield law, right? So they said, you know, we we disagree with specifically – you know, the district court went through and and said, okay, well, the Shield law says newspaper, a reporter for a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And by my sort of reading of uh, state law in other places where the, the law has defined uh, newspaper for other purposes, it says it has to be in print. And so therefore – you know, because Sam Toll doesn't print his product, he's not a he's he, he's not a newspaper. The storyteller is in a newspaper, and, and so he's not covered by the shield law. And the court said, okay, well, let's take it one one step further. What does print mean? Mm-hmm. And in their looking at you know, once again, kind of returning to the dictionary definition of print, they said, well, print can be online or in paper, mm-hmm. and so therefore, our reading is that a newspaper could potentially be something mm-hmm. that's digital and published online only. Mm-hmm. And so the, the kind of narrow part of the reasoning was you, know, we, you, you misunderstood the, the sort of – or misinterpreted the term newspaper as it applies to Sam Toll. So you should reconsider that. Mm-hmm. But the big broad ruling is the part that says if, if you publish online only, if you publish digital news, then you can be covered by the shield law. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that this case could come back to the Supreme Court? I mean, it could potentially could. I'm probably the least qualified person that you could talk to to make predictions about what Mm -hmm. the state Supreme Court, and I'm certainly the most reluctant to make predictions about what the Supreme (laughs) Court is going to do or what the implications of this ruling might be for Santol or for the district court. The broader issue may come back before the state Supreme Court. And what I mean by that is, you know, they said digital news can be covered by the Shield law. There was a question that's that the the court basically left unanswered because the neither side briefed it, which was there was also an issue in the district court's ruling where they said if you're a member of the press association, the state press association, mm-hmm. you are covered by the shield law, and basically the way that you know uh, uh, shook out was that the that toll was. You know, became a member of the press association while he was reporting on mm-hmm. this story. So some of the information at issue was covered because he was a member of the press association. Some of it wasn't because he wasn't yet a member of the press mm-hmm. association. Supreme Court put a footnote in about that but didn't say anything about specifically whether – you know, one side or the other, whether the district court was right about mm-hmm. basically whether membership in the press association is a sufficient mm-hmm. criteria to to cover you by the shield right. law. That's something that we you know, I sort of talked about with folks on the back end of this case, but it didn't end up getting briefed and mm-hmm. didn't get end up sort of getting resolved. I mean, I personally sort of hope that ends up being a little bit of a cul-de-sac and never really gets yeah. you know addressed again. It's frankly, it's really illogical. I mean, I understand how oh, the yeah. court got to where got to that decision because basically the it says the district court. The district court, yeah. It says press association in the Shield Law, but what the, you know, the Shield Law was passed in 1969 at a time when what the term press association meant was something like Associated Press mm-hmm. or you know Scripps News Service or U- right. Uni- United Press International. These were news associations, press associations where you didn't have a newsroom in the state, but you were working on behalf of a right. press organization. So you were obviously and kind of undoubtedly a reporter, mm-hmm. um, and so it was you know kind of in the the law was written to be inclusive of those. People people, it was not intended to, you know, any member of the press association that basically all you've got to do is, you know, have your press association card or have your membership up to date, and therefore that makes you covered by uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. law. That wouldn't really make a lot of sense. And I think the press association, they don't want to be the kind of, you know, uh, licensees uh, or licensors of of journalism in the state of Nevada Mm -hmm. for purposes of the S.H.I.E.L.D. law. So the state Supreme Court didn't make a ruling on that. That's something that could potentially come Mm -hmm. back. And they also, you know, they bumped it back down on the question of the anti-slap law, which is kind of what this what this case right. what got start got this case started in the first place. I guess,
2: right. sort of zooming out here, the dynamic you have is a very wealthy individual who has a lot of political power, connections in the state, suing a journalist, and I'm curious. If you see that as a as someone who's sort of studied this in an academic way, if you see that as a, being a new trend, an increasing trend, you know where it fits in. Obviously, in Nevada, the other person that comes to mind is Sheldon Adelson. I remember when I was reported in Las Vegas, he sued a reporter at the Wall Street Journal for defamation, and so I'm just sort of curious. How you see this, if at all fitting into kind of those dynamics?
3: yeah, uh, I mean, the atmosphere for journalism right now, it is not the most comfortable time to be doing journalism. Mm-hmm. there are, you know the the atmosphere generally is one where I think there are uh, there's maybe a heightened likelihood. Um, it's difficult, you know, I have not seen data specifically on this, but certainly the conventional wisdom among folks you know in my position are seeing. A number of high profile, high money, high stakes cases like this. Basically, you know, I think we're in an atmosphere where powerful people or aggrieved people, uh, or some combination of those two, mm-hmm. uh, have been emboldened to sue. Journalists, when they're displeased with what they see. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't the first time this has happened. I mean, the, the whole history of libel law in many ways has kind of been written on and over this course of powerful people trying to challenge mm-hmm. their critics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, all the sort of big landmark cases on uh, defamation, libel, and, and invasion of privacy and, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, these torts that people tend to sue over uh, when they're aggrieved by the press... Are written on these big landmark cases mm-hmm. often when powerful people with lots of money and lots of resources are suing critics. Mm-hmm. So you know, there. Uh, this is not the only case. The, the Gilman v. Toll case is, is not the only one that's playing out in the state of Nevada. There's a, a reporter in Mesquite, uh, Barbara Elstad, who's been sued now several times related to. Reporting she's been doing on litigation around the water district there in Mesquite, and she has you know in, in unlike uh, well not unlike Toll actually just like Toll she has had to foot the bill for her legal expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, as, as I understand it, the Nevada Press Association reported that she's paid twenty seven thousand dollars out of her own pocket wow. to get legal defense against subpoenas trying to get at her sources. And generally, you know the the intent of this is to you know there there may be merit behind these subpoenas to try mm-hmm. to get, you know, we need to know what we need to know so that we can file our lawsuit right. or that we can proceed with our our legal proceedings, but it's also, you know, has the knock-on effect of intimidating a reporter to say, mm-hmm. well, maybe I won't report on these mm-hmm. things. The You know, the the president's rhetoric around wanting to change the libel laws, wanting to, you know, make it easier for people to sue and win lots of money, as he likes to say, I think has emboldened people to say, you know, I mean, there's there are members of Congress um, who have been suing. Uh, news organizations kind of left, right and center to, you know, over things that they don't like what, you know uh, that have been printed or said and so, you know, it's a moment where I think we're seeing a lot of these lawsuits and, and a lot of the law is kind of playing out in real time and so, you know, it's it's a challenging time to be doing journalism, it's a little bit of a scary one I think mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're covering issues that are, you know uh, controversial or likely to raise lawsuits mm-hmm. but I also think, I mean it, it, it runs the gamut. I mean, a lot, of, you know, these are lawsuits over, you know, everything from sexual assault allegations or related to those allegations. You have lawsuits over, you know, fights over water, which of course is a big thing out here in the West, but it might not seem like the most likely thing to turn up, you know, a, a subpoena to a journalist. Um, so it's the point is, if you're a reporter, I think you may not even know when you're stepping in it, when you're likely to right. get, um, you right. know, get called in for to reveal your sources or hand over information. And so that's why shield laws like the one in Nevada can be important, and our understanding of them can be really important. Can too. you
2: kind of briefly maybe explain to our listeners why the shield law is important? Because I think if you're not in journalism yeah. and practicing journalism every day, you might not th- be, you know, thinking all the time about. Why journalists want to protect their sources and why the SHIELD law is sort of significant.
3: Yeah, so basically, what a SHIELD law is, is it is a. Is there are 40 states across the country that have these laws that are uh, meant to protect journalists from having to r- reveal confidential sources or uh, unpublished information. And, they, you know, the thing is, there's this sort of patchwork of these laws all across the country. Um, the one in, the, in Nevada is very strong. And uh, in, in the sense that there are no qualifications for it. Basically, it says it protects you know, a reporter, editor, former reporter, or a newspaper, periodical, uh, broadcast, or press association. And if you qualify under that definition, then you're protected. There is no sort of but if the government can prove this or if the litigant mm-hmm. can show that. There's none of that. Basically, if, you're, if, you, if the label fits to you, then you don't have to hand over the, the sources or information. The purpose for these laws is, you know, as you say, you know, the, the layperson wouldn't necessarily know. I mean, it was uh, actually the state supreme court in a two thousand case, uh, Diaz versus District Court, that said the purpose of the law is to enhance the news gathering process and foster the free flow of information. And what they mean that, by that is basically if. People are fearful about talking mm-hmm. to journalists if I have you know a secret about what's going on right. at my company or at my institution, and you know there's there are bad things happening, and I want to share it with the public because I think there's public safety issues right. at, at issue or something like that and I know that if I go to a reporter and talk to them confidentially mm-hmm. about it and they promise not to publish my name, and this is going to make it out to the public, and justice will be done. But then in subsequent litigation or subsequent circumstances, I might get called in and right. or the reporter might be forced to hand over that information about me then I'm going to be reluctant to share that information and it doesn't get out to the public, right? So it, it staunches that free flow of information. Right. So the purpose of these shield laws is to protect that reporting process mm-hmm. that's meant to serve the public interest. Yeah. And so that's why this definition problem matters a great deal, mm-hmm. right? Because if you know, if we have a very narrow definition of who's a journalist and it right. only applies to newspaper journalists and there's journalism happening in places outside of newspapers, then we're not sort of we may be kind of serving the letter of the law, but not mm-hmm. serving the spirit of the law, protecting the free flow of information, enhancing right. the news gathering process, like the Supreme Court says is the purpose of the law.
2: One thing that was very, you know, was definitely hit upon in the briefs for the at the district court level was this idea that Sam Toll is disqualified from being a journalist because he has maybe a political motive. Right. His blog was set up to I think he would say like fill a hole in a narrative around the sheriff's sure the sheriff's recall race so that he he had a motivation for setting up the blog you know so I guess the question is does do these special laws for journalists apply to people who might be considered by others as activists or you know I think this is something that The larger journalism community has to grapple with with press associations deciding who's a member, who's this. But, but I think you know, as far as protections under the shield
3: law, where is the line? Yeah, well, I think um, I mean, I can't I can't draw a line. What I can say though is you know, so one thing narrowly, the state supreme court. Perhaps wisely, mm-hmm. at least for their purposes, you know, punted on that a little bit, right? right? Which is to say, you know, we're not going to address the question of whether or not, sort of, having an agenda mm-hmm. or being both a reporter and commentator right. on local issues disqualifies you from the shield law protection. Um, and you know, I think that may be sort of a question yet to be answered. I think you know, socially and, and within the profession, I mean, I think it's important to keep an eye on history, the the, the history of American journalism. Anyway, we've never. Lived in a time where journalism was purely unbiased, utterly nonpartisan, totally objective. Those are all things that some journalists and some institutions have aspired to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, journalism has always been shot through with commentary, with agenda, with, you know, some partisanship. Of course, the roots of American journalism famously were, you know – when you describe someone who has a political agenda, has maybe a a, a, a political party or a political uh, a, a candidate who they're trying to support through their journalism, I mean, in the early days of the republic, many times those people were one and the same, right? right? It was, it was, you know, you your interests were political and your journalism was therefore political, yeah. um, and I would argue that 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 kind of uh, Agenda driven reporting doesn't necessarily disqualify the journalism itself. Right. Right. I mean, we're certainly entering an era of, and, and are kind of in the midst of an era of, you know, partisanship and, and polarization. And I think our journalism to a certain extent is reflecting that. Right. I'm not saying we need to sort of fully embrace that and dive into it, but right. what I can say is there's room for fact based journalism right. that also you know right. is transparent about a potential agenda or like that you know this is commentary and I think if we say that any form of you know background agenda or, or partisanship disqualifies the journalism itself from any kind of shield law protection, I think we might be throwing out a baby with the bathwater in terms of you know whether this sort of our principled protection for the for the free flow of information, enhancing the news gathering process, as the state supreme court once said, we you know we're throwing all of that out, uh, saying that you know okay, well you know we've got to uphold this nonpartisan, objective, yeah. and completely uh, uh, impartial journalism as as a value rather than anything that you know carries commentary or partisanship with it.
2: Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was really informative sure, and interesting yeah. and thank you so much. Yeah. It's a lot of fun.
0: All right. Hey, uh, hey Jackie. How's it going?
4: Great. Good to talk again.
0: Yeah, I know we haven't we haven't chatted in a bit, but we in October, you and I and our photographer Jeff Scheid, went on quite the rural excursion.
4: It was an adventure.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and so you've got this series of stories coming out about about rural education, and and I was there too. I filmed a bunch of it, and we're gonna have a, a little mini documentary come out. And I've been doing the videos for it as well. But do you want to kind of just walk me through, you know, like what we did, I guess, originally.
4: Sure. So this idea has been in the works for quite a long time, actually. We recognize that because we are the Nevada Independent, and not the Las Vegas Independent or Reno Independent, that. You know, we really would like to cover education statewide as much as we can. That's difficult, though, not living there. So we needed to do this rural trip to really set the stage and learn more about what's happening out there. So we planned this four-day trip, and I had a couple ideas in mind before we even set out. You know, obviously, we wanted to come back with some solid stories. I knew that we'd learn more and come back with more ideas, but we needed to at least have a couple things plotted out ahead of time. So, you know, as all reporting trips go, um, not everything goes perfectly as planned. You know, there was we, for instance, wanted to go to the Eureka County School District on one of those days. And uh, just because of scheduling conflicts, it didn't work out. And so we had to reconfigure our plans a bit. Um, But we basically started in Panaca. And visited an elementary school there. And then from there, we made our way to Ely, which is where we uh, spent every night. Did a tour of the White Pine County School District in Ely the following day. And then our third day, we went down to Baker on the Utah border and visited a one-room schoolhouse there. And then on our final day, we swung through a very, very remote place called Warm Springs, Nevada, that has a ranch, and on the ranch is also a one-room schoolhouse. So we hit a variety of topics through that four-day swing, and uh, two of the stories have published. Uh, The first was about a kind of unique partnership between the Lincoln County School District and the Clark County School District. Uh, Lincoln County, which includes Panaca, they drive down every so often to Las Vegas and essentially adopt uh, donated surplus furniture. So if you walk through Panaka Elementary School, I would say maybe Joey, I don't know. What do we think? Eighty-five to ninety percent
0: is probably like yeah, probably like eighty or ninety percent. I mean, like I think we walked through three schools and probably eight classrooms, and every classroom we walked through. The principal of that school would be like, oh, yeah, that's from that's from uh, uh, Clark County. That's from Clark County. That chair is from Clark County. You see those pencils? Those are from Clark County. It was amazing. Like every everything. I mean, from again, from the from the pencils to the desk. And
4: walking in, you wouldn't even suspect this. Um, I mean, there were some stickers on furniture that was labeled as, you know, El Dorado High School in Las Vegas. You know, now looking back. I could maybe tell that some of it's a little bit older, and so it may not look as new as if you walked into a brand brand new school down in Las Vegas. Um, But you wouldn't necessarily know that just walking through on first glance.
0: No, I mean, they they seemed like older schools, but not super used. I mean, nothing seemed like it was falling apart or anything.
4: No, no, not at all. So that was our first story. Um, The second story, which ran Sunday, was about... Actual older buildings and um, the White Pine County School District yes. has two buildings that are more than 100 years old. Uh, one's an elementary school and the other's a middle school. And although they have some very, very charming aspects, they also have uh, a lot of issues, including hazmat training because of asbestos tiles, a gymnasium floor that they can't have graduations on because it could pose uh, a weight risk and uh, crumble inward, and uh, a whole host of issues. Uh, Their problem is that because Ely doesn't have a strong local tax base, they've hit their property tax cap, uh, and there's not much state or federal funding for school construction, they're really stuck. They don't have enough money to build new schools. So the story's about what they're trying to to do, legislative wise, to get an infusion of cash.
0: One thing that I thought was pretty interesting when we were when we were there was kind of learning about that and learning, like per pupil, I think uh, White Pine gets a lot more money than you say, like Clark County or Washoe County per head, but they they just have so few students it doesn't matter. You know, if you have if you have ten thousand students and you get five dollars a student, you're going to be making a lot more money to sustain schools than if you have you know. 100 students and $8
4: a student. Right, right. And there's sort of this interesting juxtaposition right now in Ely because there is one charter school in White Pine County. It happens to be in Ely. And they're actually in the process of building a new school right now, which will open next year. Um, So charter schools don't get state funding for facilities. um, So they're taking on a loan and they had some donated land. But it's sort of just the symbol of a little bit of envy between the school district and then the charter school. Like the, the traditional public school district really wants and needs these new buildings, but they don't have funding stream at the moment.
0: There's definitely a really interesting dynamic, right, between, between the White Pine School District and the public schools and then the charter school in White Pine School District.
4: Yeah, and, you know, for all the differences between rural and urbans, I mean, it's the same argument I heard or I hear down here that we heard up there, which is, when students leave the traditional public school system to go to the charter school, it takes their per-pupil dollars with them. So really, it just reinforced the idea yeah. that for as much as we talk about the differences between rural and Urban Nevada in terms of education, a lot of the problems are similar.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed that for sure. I think, I think when—I when, always ask the question whenever we were interviewing somebody, you know, like, what are, what are the biggest challenges you face out here? And, and I found it really interesting because there were a lot of different answers. I remember when we were in Panaca— I was expecting, like, teacher retention rate to be a big problem, but, but the principal there was saying that they have a line of teachers, you know, like, wanting to come in, but then we look at White Pine, and then he said, you know, they were going to interview uh, a teacher, and as he was driving from Salt Lake City to Ely, he turned around and was like, I'm not, I'm not going to work here.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's unique. I, uh, I was really surprised to hear the same things you just mentioned.
0: So do you want to just preview, um, we have one more story that's going to run this Sunday, um, and kind of kind of preview what that's going to be?
4: Sure. So if you've been following along with our interactive map on the Education Landscape landing page, uh, you'll notice that we have two more location dots that don't have stories connected to them yet. Um, that's the, the third story I'm working on right now, and it will actually encompass both those locations, uh, Baker and Warm Springs. And we'll be looking at uh, the idea of the one-room schoolhouse and how it was this frontier mechanism that actually... Uh, still has some use um, in Nevada's current landscape. A lot of it has to do with the the vast landscape and the sparsely populated areas which drive the need for a one-room schoolhouse. But Baker is interesting because it actually shares students with Utah and so there's this interstate partnership that's existed for many years. And so we'll look at that model and then we'll uh, take a little journey a couple hours to the west and see what life is like on an actual cattle ranch where there is a one-room schoolhouse that's part of the Nye County School District. But half the kids actually stay Sunday night through Thursday with the family who owns the ranch. So that has a whole different, unique set of uh, characteristics. So even though we're talking about the one-room schoolhouse, what they look like place to place varies a lot.
0: That place was... Uh, that, that that school was so interesting to me because not only do these, these students stay there, but it, it was so... I mean, it's a building on a ranch, right? The school is located on the ranch, and so they're surrounded by tractors and farm animals and all this this fun stuff. That, like, I, I at least for me, even even now, I was like a kid in a candy shop running around. There was a there was a desert tortoise. Mm-hmm. There were there were cats and there there were horses. I, I I really enjoy. I have a really good picture of you, and it looks like you're interviewing a horse.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ed did not make the cut for our story, at least yet.
0: Oh. Well, he made it into the podcast, at least.
4: (laughs) But uh, yeah, and you know, beyond just the the uniqueness of the location, it really is a look at a different learning model, too. I mean, there's some theory that the one-room schoolhouse concept is actually a better model for teaching and learning, because as we saw in both places, students can, to a certain extent, learn at their own pace. At the Cattle Ranch School in particular, you know, there was a, a group of three students sitting together, and they were in... I think fourth, fifth and sixth. But the the fourth grade girl was essentially working on sixth grade level work, right alongside her brother and friend. And so, you know, it it Mm -hmm. really fosters the ability to meet kids where they are. So so yeah, so the story is more just about more than just about the uniqueness of the the geography in the place. It's also a look at how the learning style differs and what the pros and cons are.
0: And then I guess I just to, to kind of wrap up, we, we, you know, we ran into some stories that didn't even have to do with education. That was pretty fun. you probably read one of them already, but the, uh, the start, the star train story was, was a blast.
4: Yeah. And we have to give major kudos to our photographer, Jeff Scheid for that one, because he has traveled extensively throughout rural Nevada and knows pretty much everything about rural Nevada. In fact, it was pretty much jaw dropping the amount of knowledge he has And so one of the things he wanted to do was take us to the train depot in Ely and show us the history behind it and everything. And while we were there, we happened to run into the gentleman who runs the museum and whole train depot. And he generously invited us along on a star train ride that night. So it was just a small group and we went out. The, The only downside was it happened to be a cloudy night, so we didn't get to see the full star galaxy above us. But it gave us a really good look at what that experience is and why it's become such a popular thing that's really bringing some tourism benefits to the small mining town as well. So we uh, we came back and turned a story on that as well because it's just one of those only in Nevada stories.
0: Yeah. And, and just, I guess, I, I, I love telling the story to people, but a little behind the scenes. Jeff Jeff has been working in Nevada for a very long time and seems to know practically everyone it seems like and we walked into this restaurant in ely nevada and lo and behold jeff runs into like two people that he knows that don't don't, that don't live in ely (laughs) and it was it was i thought it was so funny yes
4: it was a very jeff moment and in fact i have since had coffee with the one of the people we met there (laughs) so it's our trip is paying dividends (laughs) in terms of meeting lots of people across the state who have interesting stories to tell
0: well, there's there's so many there's so many stories to tell across the state, and hopefully, um, it sounds like we're going to kind of keep trying to do some more of these in the future.
4: Yeah, I hope so. I, and that's the sole reason we created the interactive map was that we can continue populating it over time with our other destinations and stories.
0: Yeah, keep adding to it. All right, Jackie. Well, well, thanks for chatting with me and reminiscing about our fun trip in October.
4: All right, awesome. Thank you, Joey. See you soon.
0: Thank you, Jackie. Bye. <laughs> all right hey john how's it going hey joey so uh we were back to the the fun last segment of the of the show and the the segment that elizabeth dreads your movie reviews
5: this is what people are listening to the podcast for joey
0: (laughs) yes that's you know that's that's why i do this all of my work (laughs) but anyway you said you have seen uh two recent movies on netflix you want to tell me what those are
5: yeah, and let, let me just say, I think this is the wave of the future for people. I mean, the Netflix is really getting high-quality actors and productions. Uh most recent one I saw is called Marriage Story, which is uh, 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 written uh, and directed by a guy named Noel Baumbach, who writes these really intense personal dramas. The Squid and the Whale uh, was one that, that people really liked. He made, he
0: made my favorite movie last year, The Myriad Stories.
5: Yeah, I haven't seen. I have not seen that, but I hear it's good. Yeah. But uh, um, I'm wow, this is something that Joey has seen in a, a movie that I have not seen. <laughs> I am really losing my movie cred. Yeah, come on. Uh, so Marriage Story, uh, uh, it is an absolutely shattering movie about the dissolution of a marriage. And, and just the way that it's constructed uh, and the acting by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson is just out of this world. That I didn't know Scarlett Johansson could be as good as she is in this movie. And, and, uh, Adam driver, who was like one of the best young actors going, uh, obviously he is just tremendous and so affecting in this and their kid is good. And the supporting cast, uh, is good. Alan Alda is in it as, as an attorney, he's makes a surprise appearance. He's actually, uh, quite good. And Laura Dern, uh, uh, who a lot of people now know from Big Little Lies and from 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 her movie career is actually really really good in it too. I can't recommend it uh, highly enough. But as I was saying earlier, uh, if you want to be in a good mood, don't go don't go don't let some watches. It's it's real it's really tough to get out of your head, Joe. It really okay. is.
0: Well, I, I love I love Noah Baumbach's films. And I also, I, I do enjoy both Adam Driver and um, Scarlett Johansson, who I think is fan, really good in um, her acting chops show really well in Under the Skin, if you've seen that.
5: I have not seen that, but what I thought she was great in was a movie she never appears on camera in, which, which is called Her. Her, yeah. Like the disembodied voice on a computer. She's fantastic in that, just with her voice.
0: Yeah. So what's the second movie that you, uh, that you watched?
5: The other movie is The Irishman. Uh, which is Martin Scorsese's three and a half hour uh, uh, epic, later uh, his you know his final mob movie. We should we should probably assume. Um, actually, I'm glad this is on Netflix, Joey. I should tell people because I'm I, I'm now at the point where any movie I go to, it's like just a question whether I'll fall asleep for five minutes or a half an hour. <laughs> and the great thing about uh, Netflix is you can fall asleep and then watch the rest of it later. Uh, and I didn't make it through all three and a half hours in in, in one sitting. I actually like to try to do that, but. Uh, I, I give this one a, a rave as well. I think this is one of Scorsese's best movies, Robert De Niro's best performance in many, many years. Joe Pesci came out of retirement uh, to to do it, and he's fantastic. Totally dialed back. There's no Joe Pesci, you know, smashing a bottle over somebody <laughs> or exploding in anger, going crazy, anything like that. It's quite a different role for him. But the entire supporting cast is great, too. Al Pacino. Is uh, in it as jimmy Hoffa, and, and while pacino's gotten more mixed reviews i thought he was pretty good but but i if you like martin scorsese and the kind of movies he does this this one's slower than the other ones in some ways but it's definitely worth the time
0: i watched this movie on thanksgiving with my family
5: <laughs> and who liked it and who didn't
0: uh we all liked it i i think even my mom who's not a, a big fan of mob movies enjoyed it i think we all enjoyed it it's 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 not my favorite Scorsese movie. My favorite Scorsese movie is The Departed. I think, still, but this is it's up there for sure.
5: Your favorite is The Departed. That's interesting. It's the only movie he won an Oscar for. Yeah. And a lot of people thought, you know, this was like a career. That was a career award. That Goodfellas is better. Raging Bull is better. Uh, have you gone and seen all of his old movies, Joey?
0: I haven't seen. He has a a huge list of movies. I have not seen a lot of his older movies. I have seen Raging Bull. Um, I also really like Silence a lot from. 2016 that movie was tremendous right fantastic that was, great, movie.
5: That was, yeah. a, was adam driver in that too he is yeah 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 uh, if you go back and see his first movie uh with like a very young robert de niro called mean streets you, you'll love it. it it was made on a shoestring budget but you can see his greatness already there uh and it, that is really really good harvey Keitel's in it as well who may has a small role uh, in in the Irishman, but I I you should, I'm very impressed, Joey. I'm <laughs> way up in my eyes now. I got to listen to your movie taste more now. You you have great movie
0: taste. Oh, well, you know I try.
5: <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not you know I I don't I don't listen to Michelle because she doesn't know anything about movies. And, and, <laughs> needs an education. And Megan and I are always arguing about movies. So now I'm going to, you got to tell me when you see movies, Joey. Did,
0: did you know that I, I run a podcast outside of The Independent called Residual Culture All About Movies with a former professor of mine?
5: You, you told me that, but I never took it seriously. Now I have to take <laughs> it seriously.
0: We've actually, we're on hiatus for a while. He just had a kid. So I don't know when it'll be back, but uh, hopefully soon and you can hear my opinions on everything. Let me know. I want to I
5: I <laughs> listen to that. Although we
0: will cannot compete with Indie Matters. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> All right, John. Well, thanks for chatting. You You bet. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Patrick File for being on this week, as well as Daniel, Jackie, and John. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any comments, criticism, praise, or you hate John and I's movie taste, you can let me know by emailing me at joey at theenvyindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at theenvyindie.com. Reno band People With Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.